Thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. You know, you guys almost didn't have a sermon this morning because my computer keeps crashing, and I, I almost lost my sermon. And somebody said, it's a miracle, Pastor. I said, no, no, it's not a miracle. It's just technology as finest. But look, here it is. You're not going to get away. But, you know, I didn't get to review it as much. So if you see me staring at my notes, it's not that I don't love you. It's that about an hour before the service, I was saying some things I had to confess to Jesus before I came in here because my computer went Pfft. You ever have that happen at the worst possible moment? It's always the worst possible moment, isn't it? When people say, I think the world is a good place and sin doesn't exist, I think of those Murphy's Law moments. And I say, how can you say that? Come on, we all know it happens. We do. We, we know that it's the way it goes. So we're going to look here this morning, again, at Romans chapter 9. I shared with you last week, a lot of pastors are chicken. They skip this one. They skip this whole chapter. I was talking to a friend that's a pastor yesterday. He shared someone came to his church when he did Romans because they had skipped over it at their previous church, and they thought that was really kind of weak sauce. So they, they actually switched churches over it. I mean, I, I don't think that's going to happen around here. If we don't get through the book of Romans, I'm afraid some of you might switch churches just to get away from it. I'm not sure, you know. Uh, but don't worry, you have some breaks coming up as some of our, our ruling elders are sharing. We have some, some guest preaching coming up. There'll be some great stuff and some great variety, so don't worry about that. But for today, we're going to talk again in Romans chapter 9. And last week, we shared about how Paul was absolutely devastated. He was wrecked by the reality that people he loved, people he knew, who had grown up in the promises of being part of the Jewish covenant, the Old Testament covenant. If you want to know more about that, we're going through the book of Genesis uh, in the fantastic study on Thursday morning. And we just have been finishing up with Jacob and Isaac and, and all of that. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. That's going to come up in our passage. But you know, it's something powerful to know that we grow up much as the Jewish people in Paul's time, and part of them were in the Roman church, you remember. We grow up and we don't have this knowledge, we don't have this understanding of God's word uh, in a lesser degree than anybody else in the world. Probably here in America, we have it to the greatest degree of anyone. If you grew up in America until probably about 10 years ago, you had some semblance of God's word. We are only now getting to the point in America where when people hold up a sign at a football game that says John 3.16, you know that there are people that don't know that now. Have you ever thought about that? They used to hold that up and everybody go, oh yeah, I know that one. Whether you believed it or not, whether you put stock in it or not, everybody knew it. Not so today. Not so today. If you watch any of the shows and any of the things on TV, there are other shows that do it. Jay Leno started this, of course, with his jaywalking. Do you guys remember this? He would go out with a historical fact like, what is Thanksgiving? What is Easter? What does this mean? What does this phrase mean in just our American history? And he would be astounded by the terrible answers he would get. We laugh at that stuff, and I understand that, but the reality is, it's not as funny because it's becoming far more common that people don't know even our history, let alone the history of Western culture, the history of our world, or the spiritual reality, the moral, spiritual, relational, the community underpinnings of that. Paul was lamenting 
that the Roman church didn't know that as well. And even those who grew up in it did not know Christ. Later this morning, I'm going to ask you to write down the name of someone. It can be more than someone. It can be five people, however many people God lays on your heart. People that you long to share the good news with, that you long to know Jesus. Maybe someone you have talked to about their faith, and they say, it's just not for me. But the importance of this reality that we're called to this, like Paul was called to it, we hurt for those who don't know Jesus. Even though God is sovereign and he elects, as we're going to talk about this morning, he calls people to faith, we're going to be reminded this morning what we started talking about last week. We don't get a pass on sharing Jesus with other people just because God is almighty. We are the hands and feet. We are the ambassadors. We are meant to be the embodiment, the literal incarnate presence of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We have to convey that truth to the world around us. That's our deepest calling, to glorify God, to show Him as Savior and Redeemer. That's why you were created. First and foremost, for nothing else were you created but to glorify God by calling other people to know Jesus Christ. If he is truly the way, the truth, and the life as we're going to celebrate at this table, as we're going to read this morning, that's what we're called to do, and that's how God works. And God does call some to himself, and yet others he, he allows to go to hell. And we're going to look at Romans 9, and it's going to be something that is, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, because in our rugged, individual American worldview, this is a tough passage for us to swallow. Because it's going to talk about God and who he calls and how he calls. And with my ego, personally, I can tell you, with, with my desire to be on God's throne, with my sinfulness that comes from the Garden of Eden, I want this to be about me. I want this to be about me. But let's take a look here at Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. We'll talk about this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall, be your, offspring, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Wow. This is tough. It's a tough passage. You remember last week we did start where Paul was talking about this idea. How he longed for the people to promise, the people who were born in the flesh, in that those who knew the covenant... And yet, in sinfulness, 
God reminds us it's not about that. We're all born into sinfulness. We're all kind of stuck in the mud with our sin. You know, this summer, I'm working, I'm cleaning out my garage. It is testing my human endurance, my mental, my physical endurance, yes, but my mental and emotional endurance. In 25 years of ministry, it is amazing the amount of crap that you collect. You don't even have to be in ministry. I at least can pretend I have a divine excuse. I don't. I really don't. I don't have a divine excuse. But anyhow, our garage is like a chamber of shame and failure. We were going through boxes of stuff yesterday, and we found some cool stuff. I, maybe I'll share. I found my, my sister and I had Woodsy the Owl. Does anybody remember Woodsy the Owl? Give a hoot, don't pollute. I'm the only one that remembers. Oh, my gosh. Okay, never mind. Okay, never mind on that one. But anyhow, you find cool stuff. You find photos. You find things that make you smile. And you find something you looked for a hundred times. And you bought another one because you couldn't find it. If you tell me that's never happened to you, I don't believe you. I think you're lying to the pastor yet again. Oh, my gosh. Paul today, he sees his Jewish brothers and sisters. And they have it. They had the promises. They had the history. They had the culture. They had all of it. Yet they lost it. They put it away in a box. They forgot it. They misunderstood it. It was gone from their minds. It was gone from their hearts. And yet they still thought they had it. They still thought they understood it. And so they come to Paul and they say to him, Hey, we're, we're now Christians. We're Jewish Christians, some of them. They said, we, we know we're better than these guys. We get it. Remember that. We're not like these people. We're not like those pagans, those heathens. And the heathens look around, they're like, well, we're not like these people that are doing all this stuff. And they played those pointing games as we learned in the book of Romans. And Paul says, don't you guys get it? It's not about any of that. It's not the way it works. And they, they're trying to wrestle and understand this. And they come to Paul and they say, hey, maybe the problem is with this gospel message. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it's the way we're doing it ourselves. Maybe it's the gospel, and we're presenting it, and people don't get it. Maybe we need to spice it up or change it or just kind of water it down a little bit. It's funny that the church then struggles with what the church now struggles with. Maybe if we just make it a little more fun, a little more convenient, a little less difficult, you know what? we got to lower the bar a little bit. I'm all for making the gospel accessible. I'm all for making worship, for making the practical parts of the church as practical and as culturally relevant as possible. There's nothing wrong with that. The vehicle is not the substance. It's not. We need to remember that. And the church has to be culturally accessible. But you can't change the message. You can't change God's word because God's word, God's spirit, the gospel is what changes hearts and lives. And people were sinners now and they struggle with the same thing that we do today. And the reason that pastors don't like to preach this is because lots of people in their hearts today still say, can't we just make this a little easier? And Paul says, no, that's not the problem. That's not the problem at all. In fact, he's talking about this idea of predestination. And this is what Presbyterians are known for. 
And predestination is actually made up of two doctrines. And I've told you the book of Romans is personal, it's powerful, but it's also doctrinal. And there's two things we'll talk about just very briefly today because they're not the main point of this passage. But this is a passage that is used uh, doctrinally and theologically by us as a proof text, as a validation from God's word that it's reality. And those are election and, retro and reprobation. There are those who are called into God's place, the elect, where God reaches out and brings their hearts and souls to life, and he calls them out of the brokenness of being totally dead in their sin. And that's how you know Christ. That's those in all places who are part of the church. They may not have membership at a church. They could be underground in China. They could be sitting on death row when God's spirit came to them and they just read his word and said, you know what? I messed this all up. Those people are the elect. Hopefully you're among them. On the other side, there are, are those that God has not called. Those who will not accept him. And as we're going to learn today, they don't want to. And those are the reprobate. Romans 9 is this biblical foundation. And it's about more than this. But to start out with, we mentioned the book of Genesis and how we, we just always love sin. We have a double dose of sin as we've learned in the book of Romans. And we have to remember that. We not only choose sin, we willingly and desire to choose sin. We love it. We like to swim in it. It's a big part of who we are. And we've learned about that. We've looked all through the book of Romans, Romans 3, Romans 6. We all sin. We all fall short. And in fact, we, we choose sin. We like it. And Paul reminds us of Romans 7, you know, it's just our nature. Unless God intervenes, we keep on going towards hell and sinning. We all do. I don't care how good you are, how moral you are, how well-raised you were, what kind of parents or examples you've had. I don't care if you think it's nature versus nurture, it's both. And you were raised by sinners. I'm a sinner, I raised two good kids, and you know what? They're sinners too. Reprobation is simply this. All of us choose sin. We love it and we enjoy it. Romans 7, Paul says, I don't do the stuff I want to do. I do all the stuff I don't want to do. And the stuff I know I don't want to do, I just feel like I keep on doing it. Over and over again. It's Groundhog Day with Bill Murray in the worst spiritual sense. Every day. This is why some of this self-help stuff, that you're going to get it all together someday, is baloney. You can get some of it together, and you are responsible to get your life together. But without God's grace... You and I can't lick an envelope. We can't. Because you cut yourself on it, and then you say something, you say, Lord, forgive me. Right? I just did a bunch of wedding invitations. Trust me. I talked with a lisp for three days after that. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. We do that. We all do it. You say, no, no, not everyone's that bad. A lot of people are really good. I was at the BMV proof that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And I went in there with uh, my friend Rob Spars, pastor at Hudson Press. We were eating lunch one day, and I just stopped in there, and they had that little deli number thingy. You guys know what I mean? And there was only three people in there. So I didn't grab it, because it didn't look like they were using it. And all of a sudden, I saw a land rush of people coming, and this lady went in in front of me, and they called the first number. So I realized, whoops, I should have a number. And I 
went back and she saw me coming. She boxed me out like she was Tristan Thompson from the Cavaliers, grabbed a number out of the thing. This is no lie. You can ask Pastor Spar about this. She turned and she sneered at me. She went, heh. And she marched away. And I was so mad because she knew that I was there. If there was a shovel in a ditch behind the building and no one was looking, I might have whacked her with it and put a few, just a few scoops on top of her to let her know what she almost got. We call that a Youngstown warning where I come from. Sweetest lady. She looked real nice. She looked like she'd make you a bunch of cookies. No. And she turned, the worst thing was she turned and said, I'm going to be about 20 minutes. Now, anybody knows that the BMV, that means two hours. So I left. And we were laughing about it, walking back over here. Man, I was upset for like two hours about that. We like sin. And even when we get chances, if we would probably sin more if we thought we could get away with it. I mean, think about it. Think about your blank for you, whatever that is. I would love to eat more ice cream if I could get away with it. Yeah, amen. This is what we do. This is what happens. Sin is who we are. In his great book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis describes sin this way. I willingly believe that the damned, the reprobate, are in one sense successful, rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Do you remember we talked about Spurgeon said we forge our own chains in sin and then allow ourselves to be shackled with it? That's what we do. Just as the blessed, those who are called, those who are called according to God's purposes, as we've learned in Romans, the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. My favorite verse is John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We love sin. And unless divinely God pulls us out of the quicksand of it, we willingly go down to the bottom. We do. We love it. Part of the reality of coming to Christ, just like uh, I may share with you in seminary, my spiritual development class, we use the 12 steps of AA. Most helpful class I ever had in ministry preparation. Dr. Paul Zoll, my professor and the president of my seminary, he, uh, he said, hey, here's your manual, and if you think you're too good for it, you don't know what you're doing yet. You have to know you have a problem before you can deal with it, right? You need divine intervention to deal with it. We're all in recovery from sin. Paul, later in his ministry, says to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. There's not a bit of you that can waffle on this one. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul says, 
of whom I am the foremost. Think about that for a minute. What that means. But on the flip side, the blessing, the grace of God is that while we don't desire God, He desires us as we learn. He calls us in, He adopts us, and He loves us so much. Election basically is that God loves us so much, He delivers us from the hopelessness that we hunger for and desire in sin that it creates with that around us and what it creates within us, that sin that we love. That sin that we love. And it changes our perspective, not just on ourselves, but on those we see around us. It should. We have profound gratitude that God would save anyone. When people say, how can God send anyone to hell? How can God send any of us to heaven? We spit in God's face every day of our lives. And just because nobody else sees it but us, we pretend that's okay, which proves that we think we're God. It's just the nature of us as sinners. And the more our nation and our world convinces itself that there is no sin, the worse it gets and the less free it gets. Have you noticed that? We're supposed to be in a golden age of understanding. How much compassion do you see in the streets? I'm serious. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care. But if you think denying God's truth makes people anything less than a slave, you're not looking with the eyes of the Holy Spirit at the world around you right now. I watch kids screaming things they don't even know what they're saying. But they're certainly not creating more freedom for their fellow man and woman, are they? It's not about your politics. It's about how you see that person next to you. Are they a magodain, made in the image of God? Are they valuable? Are they worthy of the love and the grace of God? Would you share the hope of heaven with them because you know you're the chief of sinners. That's what Paul's saying. I don't know why pastors skip this chapter, because it's uncomfortable or because it's the key to the church's future. The question they ask, has God, have God's promises failed the world? Absolutely not. The Pharisees used to come to Jesus all the time. And they'd say, hey, we're, we're the, the children of Abraham. We, we know all this stuff. We get all this stuff. We understand all this stuff. And Jesus said, you guys, are, you're dead on the inside. You, you look good on the outside. He says, don't you understand? God has always saved people by faith. That's what Romans has been teaching us. From the very beginning, look at Genesis 17. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's us too. The promise that's being talked about here is a spiritual deliverance. And what that means for us is we're always, always saved by faith. It's not how you're born. It's not how rich you are, what color you are, or where you come from. But it's about belonging to Jesus Christ, that he's grabbed hold of your heart. 
That means our pedigree, our performance, our prominence, all the stuff we worry about. Jesus does not care about your resume. Jesus cares about your heart because you're going to do good, you're going to give generously, and you're going to love other people if he gets your heart. All the rest of that stuff that we put at the front, we put the cart before the horse all the time. That's not what it's about. It's not how it works. Paul is actually referring to someone in this passage not mentioned. Isaac had a brother named Ishmael. Do you remember him? He was the brother who had no faith. Yeah, he was circumcised, and he had Abraham as his dad, born in that covenant, but he did not have that promise in his heart. It wasn't about his performance. It wasn't about anything like that. Remember on Father's Day when we talked about Jacob and Esau? Do you guys remember that? You thought that was just for Father's Day, didn't you? Look what it says. Look what it says here. Paul's actually quoting, as we're going to see, the Old Testament prophet Malachi. Look what it says. Not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Paul's a Jew, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election. I love when people say the Bible never says election is a reality. Right there! Presbyterians, this is our verse. But it's in God's word. It, God will call. He always called. He always will. It'll continue. Not because of anything you or I do, whether you smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. I told you that was from Malachi. Malachi, the people are sinning, and God is punishing them. People are coming in from other countries, and God is using them to discipline them. Remember when we used to discipline people and tell them things were wrong? They are. Chief of sinners, you have to understand that. God has a redeeming love, but it's a correcting, it's a disciplining, it's a just love. He's a just God. And God says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? And he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Even though Esau was born first, even though on paper he was the guy in his heart, he never was God's. God doesn't care about your pedigree, your prominence, or your performance. I have laid waste the hill country. I have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God said, I let other people come in and carry off all this stuff because I chose you as my faithful remnant, my people. God is the God who redeems us when we don't deserve it, when we don't measure up. All of this is about God's enormous, unfathomable love. That's what we're supposed to learn. But you're saying that God is a God that has hate. God's God is love, and love is God, and love wins. And I'll tell you what, no. Love is sometimes when you tell somebody you can't have it your way. Love 
is about when Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anybody comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does that even mean? What's he saying there? John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is that a typo? No. God here is saying, I love you so much that every other relationship you have is secondary to me. That means your marriage. That means your kids and your grandkids. You want to be a good parent or a good grandparent? Show them how much you love your spouse, sure. But show them how much you love God, because if you love God more, you're going to love your spouse better anyhow. If you love God more than you love your spouse, than you love your kids, you're going to love your spouse better, and you're going to both love your kids better, or your grandkids better, anyhow. God is a jealous God. He says, you will have nothing, nothing before me. Because if you do, it's an idol. That's what he says. We love God because he first loves us, and he loved us first and sent his one and only son. This is all about God. This idea of election is all about God. He has eternal purposes, so we are to be all about him as well. First place is all he will accept. It's a tough passage. It's a tough passage because we're called here to live out that gospel purpose. I want you to take those cards out you have right now in your seats there, those cards. As we come to the Lord's table, if you haven't already done that, write down a name that God has given to you or more than one name. Write both of those names, write them both on each of the cards. So if you have five names, write all five on one card, write all five on the other card. If you have two names, these are people that you know you're called to share the gospel with. Maybe they're people you know. Maybe it's somebody you love. Maybe it's a child or a grandchild, a friend, a brother, a sister, a parent, whoever it is. Maybe it's someone that's far away. Hopefully it's somebody, at least one of the names, is someone you can interact with. Maybe you drive to work the same way every day like we talked about last week. Maybe you see a car at a stoplight and you just see the, the countenance, the face of that person. And they're hurting. Man, are they hurting. You just know that something's there. Somebody is hurting. Maybe it's the person, you know, the, with the silver car. I don't know. Whatever that, write that down. Write those on both cards, because you're going to keep the one card. I want you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it. Car visor in your Bible. Hopefully, maybe it's your Bible, because that means you're going to open it and use it. Grab a devotional out there. Go to your app store on your smartphone and type in Christian devotions. There's at least 10 free ones that are great. If you don't know what one to use, come see me. I'm a nerd. I'll help you. If you want to take that home, make it a snap a picture of it, make it your wallpaper. Put it on your notepad on your phone where you see it every day, where you look at it, whatever it is. Pray for that, your bathroom mirror, your car visor, I don't care. 
and that other card that you're going to bring up and put in this basket as we go to the Lord. Our session, our ruling elders, are going to get this list. We're going to divide it up, and they're going to be praying along with you. You don't have to put your name on there, anything like that. We don't have to know who it's from. Just those names. And we will be praying with you. If it's someone, you get the opportunity, if God gives it to you, and you don't have all the answers, I'm going to give you a simple thing you can say. It's really hard. Two questions. How are you? Here's the tough part. Then you have to stand and wait and honestly listen. You'd be amazed how many people don't have anyone that will do that for them. Question one, how are you doing? Question two, after they've spoken, how can I pray for you? Love them, encourage them. If you see them again, repeat, wash, rinse, and repeat. How are you? How can I pray with you? I don't know what to do. Well, well, you can come. You can invite them to church. If they have a church, say, that's okay. Are you going to your church? Well, no, I had a problem there. Okay, we should go to a different church. You're always invited to mine. If you love your church, go there. We're not trying to steal people from other churches that preach the gospel. That's what I want you guys to work on. We live God's call, and we embody God's purposes of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table this day, as we have these names that hopefully you've laid on our hearts over the last week or so, God, that you would give them to us, that we would know who it is that you have called us to be your hands and feet to, that we would love, that we would share, that we would encourage God in every little way. We don't have to invade anybody's lives. We don't have to hurt anybody. We just have to be that incarnational part of the gospel that you were, that you call us to by your spirit, that as we've learned in Romans, we're empowered to do the gospel, that we can just say, how are you? Well, you don't know me. I don't know you, but I know that everyone needs somebody that can encourage them. Everyone needs someone that can listen, that we would pray, that we would care. And Lord, that those people on that list, if we know them, if we have the opportunity, that we would reach out and just show them love and grace and mercy that we would listen and that we would pray for them, that you would give us a burden to minister to them, and that you, by your divine power of election, we don't know who you've called, but it doesn't matter. We share it with everyone. That we would share the good news of the gospel and all we say and all we do, that we would actively and intentionally do that. God, fill us with your grace and your spirit even as we come to this table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.